Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined by, as our friends on the booketing refer to them, Angela Lansbury and Tim McGraw. I'm going to burn somebody down. <laughs> our friends over on the booketing podcast gave us a shout out, and they made fun of us for our banter, as people seem want to do. And they referred to you as Angela Lansbury and Tim, Tim McGraw, which I'm honestly, I might be okay with this. I, I might be okay with it. No one, they didn't refer to me as anything. I don't know what they say. No, they said David Kern and Angela Lansbury and Tim McGraw or whatever their names are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's not, let's not take it personally. They're doing their best over there. Hashtag triggered. <laughs> yeah. Hey guys, they're trying, right? Tim, they're Tim trying. McGraw is a country singer, right? As far as I know, yeah, I'm yeah. not an 80 year old actor, but maybe I am and I just <laughs> act young. <laughs> Tim's not 80. Me, Angela. <laughs> Tim's not. Oh, I thought you were making fun of Tim. Uh, well, usually I am, but in this case. <laughs> well, yeah. So, our friends over at the Booking also were talking about Murder on the Orient Express, and they thought, you know, let's make fun of Close Reads while we're on the show. So, I. I actually have no problem with that. I kind of support it. It's um, It makes sense. It's, I thought it was a loving homage. It, it, I think make fun is a little harsh. That's not what I heard. Well, often loving homages <laughs> and making fun are closely. There's a fine line at times. As I've as I've begun to understand between your and Tim's relationship. <laughs> fine line between loving homage and making fun. Yes, okay. I'm not going to argue against that. <laughs> well, I am here... Still battling this stupid chest cold. So I leave it. I thought it went away. I feel functional. I feel functional, okay. but but it's the kind of thing where when I talk, I just have to cough. So periodically, I'm just gonna, you know, release release a cough, and you know, everyone will have to just be okay with it. I mean, we could take out every single cough and all that, but who who's got the time for that? We're here to talk about Twelfth Night. We had a long first episode about Twelfth Night, an hour and a half. Some people liked that. Really? Some people probably didn't. <laughs> um, 
we heard from a few people who appreciated it. Uh, we did. It was it was long, largely I think because of the amount of uh, table setting we did. Can we can we say that the week after Thanksgiving? Um, <laughs> yeah. Now we're gonna wash the dishes. Well, it's way more fun to set the table than oh, wash the dishes. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think that whoever invented the dishwasher was particularly interested in like, it, like, all they cared about is the fun, right? <laughs> like dishes are not fun, so they had to go on. Dishes are not fun. fun. I don't, I don't care what these like what these movies suggest with like you know a video montage and music, everybody's dancing around the kitchen. Nope. Yeah, I've never experienced that. <laughs> anyway, speaking of dancing around the kitchen, Twelfth Night. Also, I assume to Tim's Thanksgiving. Um, act two is is an interesting one because, frankly, nothing happens. Are we, are we so skipping the banter? You, you're taking, oh, you're taking what they said on that other no. show to heart. We're skipping the banter. I'm like in shock. I'm like, wait, oh, I'm you, not ready. Do you? Okay, sorry. Hold on. <laughs> Let me rewind. Angelina, talk about your talk about what's going on in your life right now. Okay, so I actually have a yeah, story. You, okay. Oh, oh. I oh, have okay. a story. Told this person I was gonna tell this story okay. today. I, I, like, the pressure's I, apologize, I apologize. I just was like, it seems like one of those days I was getting a let's get down to business vibe from well, the two of you. So. Oh, for, oh, really? That's the vibe you got from me pacing around your <laughs> office all morning. Yeah. Good, Carrie, Carrie, tell the story. Tell the story. I apologize. I don't mean to, I didn't mean to steal the thunder of, no, of no. your uh, your. It's fine. Whatever. Your subject matter. I just had a moment in my life where we don't have to share it. No, you today. probably should. I feel like you probably should do that. <laughs> all right. So for Thanksgiving. My son brought home a friend of his from college who mm -hmm. is an English major. Okay. And so he had been telling me about him and saying, you know, I really want you to meet him. What's his name? His name is Justin. Justin. Okay. And um, so, I, uh, you know, he comes over and uh, I'm trying to be cool. And not like just like jump on him immediately and be like, let's talk books. Right. Yeah. So I wait an appropriate amount you, of time. Oh, you mean you're trying to be cool like you're trying to be chill, not you were trying to be like cool and like in the, you're not trying to be hip. No, I didn't come out with like blue hair or anything. I was oh, just okay. trying to like right. restrain myself right. okay. from pushing him <laughs> okay. into the corner and Got quizzing him on the classics. Just Got to be like, okay. what kind of English major are you? Yeah, and, exactly. You know, fight to the death, basically. Now, so I waited, you know, a reasonable amount of time, like, you know, five minutes. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And then, no, right. no, no, not a reasonable amount of time. Yeah. And then I was like, so, English major, huh? He says, yeah. And I said, so, uh, is there like a particular author or genre that you're, you're drawn to? And he, so he's, he kind of gives me this look and he says, well, have you heard of Cormac McCarthy? I said, um, yes, um, yes, I have actually. So he starts talking to me very animatedly about how he loves Cormac McCarthy. And I say, okay, that's, that's, that's very interesting. So you like modern stuff. And he goes, oh, no, not necessarily. I also just really, I love Dostoevsky. And I was like, okay. So he keeps talking. So what is it about Dostoevsky and Cormac McCarthy? Kids got McCarthy a dark, dark that, reading that you life. like, right? Well, wait, wait. So he says, "Oh no, it gets worse." No, it gets better. Oh, okay. He says, "So what draws me to both of these authors is the psychological characterization of the characters." Right? And she starts going on and on. Then he tells me he writes screenplays, and I'm looking at this kid like I'm pretty sure I'm sitting down with the 21 year old version of Tim. <laughs> this is freaking me out so bad. And he's like, you know, he's like just kind of got Tim's mannerisms, and like he's just kind of you know quiet and Does reserved. He have curly hair and do and do um. Uh... Well, he was Irish and not Scottish, so you know that was one oh, difference. Okay. But it was still pretty. What's the sweating situation? Sorry, Tim. <laughs> well, we were outside in thirty degree weather. So he, so he was just lightly, the, lightly perspiring. Right, the sparkle, the sparkle. <laughs> he was sparkling pretty hard. Right, got 30, it. Thirty-two degrees. Got it. It's like ice cubes coming off him. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I was just like, I even said to him, "Okay, you're the twenty-one year version of, of Tim McIntosh." So we keep talking. And then, and he's talking about the psychological characterization and he says, but really, you know, so that's why I love Jane Eyre. And I said, wait, hold on now. 
I wrote my thesis on Jane Eyre. And he's like, well, Rochester, that's an amazing character. So he goes on and on about Jane Eyre. We keep talking. How old is this kid? Like 18? He's 21. Oh, did you already say that? Yes. I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. That's okay. I mean, people don't listen when I talk. And that doesn't ever stop me. Ask my kids. I'm in the zone. The story just, is going to come out, I'm audience just, or no. I'm just kidding. I was probably coughing when you said that. <laughs> no. So, no, he's 21. He's the same age as my son. So, anyway, um, <laughs> so we keep talking. And then he says, well, I mean, and that's why Pride and Prejudice is so awesome because, you know, Darcy is just such a man. And I was like, yes, yes, he is. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm, like, I'm getting excited. Like, Cormac McCarthy, Dostoevsky, Jane, Aaron, Pride and Prejudice. Like, what is happening here? Then we start talking your, music. Your son has good taste in He has apparently. excellent taste. Yeah, apparently. Does Justin listen to the show? He does now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> What's up, Justin? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's embarrassed somewhere. But anyway, okay, so... No, he's reveling in this. He's he like, probably is. He just threw on his beret and pulled out the headphones on his iPhone exactly. so everyone in the coffee shop could hear. This is it. This is his <laughs> moment. Shine, Justin. Or sparkle, I mean. So anyway, we start talking music. Justin, just in case you're wondering, Tim sweats a lot. That's why he said that. <laughs> yeah, that's the background. Yeah. <laughs> we start talking music. He likes all the same, like, weird, no, nobody ever heard in bands that I do. And, like, we're just quizzing each other back and forth. I'm like, I'm now looking at the 21-year-old version of me. But wait, he keeps going. So then he tells me that he's binge watching Mad Men and he just starts giving me this full on analysis. He's quoting film critics. Now David's leaning forward. Now he's paying attention. And he's, my chair just, yeah. just... <laughs> he's quoting film critics. He's going on and on. I'm thinking, now you sound like you sound like David. This is so weird. And he says, Well, you know, my original major was film studies, and I did that for two years before I transferred to this college, and now I'm an English major. At which point I leaned forward and said to him, you are the love child of close reads. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what he is. Right? He's the, he's the embodiment of this show. He is the love child of close reads. <laughs> Maybe let's not call him that too often, but I'd get your drift. <laughs> okay, the spirit the, child. What do you want me to call yeah. him? The spirit child of close reads. Yeah. The, DNA, the DNA amalgam. Is that, could we call him that? Not very no, romantic. No, that is not romantic at all. That's, so does that no. mean that, that he already has lived up to the bar or he has a lot of bar to live up to? I don't know. I just feel like this podcast gave birth to a 21-year-old human and I met him. <laughs> That's what it felt like. And, but, and what was his response to that? The good news is we're really cool. Oh, he loved it. He loved it. So now he's listening. Now he, now I he, said, can I say that on the air? And he said, yes. So did you, did, did, has he subscribed? Did you make him, did you make? I didn't like make him subscribe on the spot or anything. I'm shaking my head at you. I, should I say this? Maybe I should, oh, I don't know if I should say this part or not. But you haven't subscribed? No, no, no. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, I may have gotten really excited and start mentally putting together a list of eligible girls in my head as he was oh, yeah, sitting yeah. there, course, you know. Yeah. Of course I did that. And so I said to him something like, oh, listen. I have in my head a list of girls who are, you know, because you are the quiet, sensitive, literary man. And I'm about to introduce you to the world in which that man is king. And this was his response. No, that's not a thing. (laughs) 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 No, trust me, that is not a thing. Like, Oh, you've just been in the wrong world. Trust me, it is a thing. It is a thing. (laughs) Well, Justin, I think your future has changed. Um, So, Justin, welcome to the show. <laughs> is he, yeah. He's going to be like... Yeah. What would, you guys, what would happen if we brought Justin actually onto the show and, you know, set him down with a set of headphones? I it, actually suggested this to him. <laughs> what would happen? I'd be out of a job, probably. <laughs> it would probably, probably just fall completely flat. You know, it's just like the way that life works. you like, oh my gosh, this could unless, be magical. And then unless it happens. He and... with himself, you know. Yeah. 
could, could get a little odd. He starts describing Mr. Darcy in a Cormac McCarthy novel. It could get really weird really fast. Oh, wow. Darcy and all the pretty horses. Now, there's an interesting idea. That's a really fan, interesting. Fan novel. Oh, he made his case to me about which Cormac McCarthy novel to read. So. What did he say? Well, I told him that it had been recommended to me to read All the Pretty Horses. He made the case for The Road. He said it was the only one that had any kind of redemptive ending. He thought that that would be the one I would like. Mm. Ooh, y'all are really quiet. Mm. Mm. <sighs> Justin, Justin, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> He's about to be put in timeout by his dad over here. <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think that's a bad choice at all. I actually think it's a good choice. It's not my choice, but I think it's a good choice. I get why people would choose that. I just don't think it's one of his better books. I know it like won the Pulitzer, and I think it, I just don't think it's as good as people say. Also, it's not where I would start, and also it's not the only one that has a redemptive ending. Justin, <laughs> you and I have some are going to have to have Ooh, some words. Some father son talks yeah. are coming your way, Justin. <laughs> I'm it's really weird that, sorry. Son, that I've got a 21 year old now. It is. Um, that is. So, um, speaking of which, not not that son, but my actual son is turning five next week. How about that? Wow. Yep. Which Carmack McCarthy novel does he like the best? <laughs> yeah, Blood Meridian. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, 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 no. Um, no, 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 no. no. Yeah. likes to read that to your other two sons at night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Jeremiah's turning five. And he's the one that I, he like Coulter has been 12 since he was born. Oh yeah. And Jeremiah is like true little boy. And he, he's the one that when he wakes up in the morning, he like, by the time he comes into our room, he's got a tie on with a sweater vest and a wow. pair of slacks and his cowboy boots and a button down shirt. And, wow. uh, and the other day I said, maybe you should not, maybe you should spread everything out. So it's not all just in a pile. So it doesn't get wrinkly. And he goes, what's wrinkly. <laughs> I'm like, son, you may dress well, but we've got some things to work on. Anyway, but he's five now, so I feel like it's a good time to teach him about wrinkly, about ironing. He's going to be doing all the ironing. Anyway, let's uh, let's talk about Twelfth Night. Unless, Tim, do you have a story you want to tell? No, I don't. Okay. No, I don't. Right. You did not I don't, also meet the spirit child I, of Close Reads I don't want to leave you out. No, I did not. No, I did not. <laughs> well, we're here to talk about Act 2 of Twelfth Night, and thanks to everyone who contributed to on you know the conversation online. There was a lot of... A good conversation. I think people, I ha, I thought people might enjoy touching on Shakespeare a little bit, but it seems like it's been, people have been excited about, you know, really excited about it. There's been more conversation than I expected um, after just one act. So I, I think that's, that's pretty fun. That's pretty cool to see. Um, and hopefully we will uh, do the, do the, do the bard justice with our conversations. So in act two, like I said, not a lot really happens um all the traps get laid all the traps get laid yeah and one thing i was thinking about tim is angelina and i have talked about a few things that you know that came up you know because she got she's here in the office but one thing i'd like to hear from you is just a little bit about the the art of writing a play Mm. um because one thing i noticed is here in act two what the things that do happen, like for example, Viola um, putting together, you know, that, you know, saying she loves Orsino and putting together that, that um, Olivia had fallen in love with her, right. playing yeah. Cesario or whatever his name is. She just kind of tells us that, right? So Viola just sort of lays all that out. And it's, you know, in a novel, you can give us these scenes, right? 
or even in a screenplay for a movie or a TV show, there's a lot of direction and like you can still describe yeah. dialogue and everything. But a play has to get across these sweeping narrative arcs through simply language. Through, I mean, right. more specifically through through dialogue. What are the challenges that comes with that as a, as a playwright? I'll say one other thing before I answer the question. Yeah. Shakespeare is also notorious for having almost no stage directions in his plays. Yeah, what's the, there's one play that has like a real stage direction, like Exit Left, Pursued by Lion or Pursued by Bear. It's, from a yeah, story. it's from The Winter's Tale, Exit Pursued by a Bear. It's the most famous stage direction in dramatic history. It's, it's <laughs> and it's, so let's just sidetrack on that. The question about that play is whether or not there was an actual bear on the stage because bear baiting happened in London at the time. And it was not unreasonable that they would have brought a bear actually onto the stage, you know, a tamed bear, a trained bear hmm. and had him chase that character off, which is part of the reason that's such a, it's just such a great stage direction exit pursued by a bear. Um, but Shakespeare builds most of his stage directions within the actual dialogue of the play. And is that, uncom come is that uncommon compared to other playwrights, both of the era? And no, I don't think it is. I don't think it's all that uncommon. Okay. Um, I couldn't compare. I'm like, I don't know Marlowe well enough to know if he was a lot more prolix in his stage directions than was Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. um, but he's kind of a master at signaling entrance times by, you know, He'll have a character say, here they come now. And you know, that's when the characters are walking on. He just, he does that so expertly and it doesn't feel for the most part contrived. plastic. Yeah, contrived. Yeah. I mean, it, technically it is contrived. I mean, the whole concept of moving people in and off the stage has to be kind of contrived. Yeah. Um, but like, I, I like the idea of it not feeling plastic. I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, do you find that that's hard to execute in your own place? Like to do it with pr real precision? And I don't, you know, this is a specific conversation for you. So Angelina, hold tight. Yeah, I know you've got lots to say today. Not at all. I, I, think, it, I think it'll be interesting for people to hear that some of the things that go into the art of playwriting. It is, it's I don't want our listeners to think I'm over here like red-faced John at the bed. I'm, I'm sitting back, relaxed, which apparently David takes to me and she's unhappy. No, no, no. I'm just making sure that, you know, I gave her some chocolate. We're sitting here eating chocolate while he you talk. He threw candy at me. <laughs> Damn, you can talk all you want. I've got Email me some of that chocolate, David. All right, I've got some Toblerone here for you. I love it. Email it to me. Um, I'll just send you a picture. What's hard about writing stage directions, I think, is that you want to, you're writing them for a director and for the actor. The, the audience will never see the stage directions. They'll actually see the actor, let's say, step onto like, the stage. And by stage direction, you mean specifically like exit, the little yeah. parentheses. The chandelier falls in the, you know, chandelier falls or something like that. They, the right. audience will see the actual chandelier fall. They won't see the words chandelier falls. So what's kind of hard, though, is that you want to give some amount of liberality to the director and to the actors to interpret it to suit the vision of the play that they're casting. But you don't want to give so much liberality that um, the meaning of your play is smudged. Or what about, so is, is part of the, the challenge for the playwright as far as this kind of stuff goes, that, that it helps the audience to have clues in the language to know what's coming? But you still, so you, you need to maintain their ability to kind of track with you as far as 
uh, the pacing and the and the the timing of the scenes and things like that. So that yes. it's going on forever, or you know, you know what I'm saying? Yes, 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 yes. And you and yeah. So you've got to give them. I think what is most helpful is providing kind of metaphorical stage directions, or I should, maybe I could say poetic stage directions. So, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of a good example. <laughs> there's a there's a playwright who this is actually not suiting my point, but hopefully it will get the point across. There's a playwright named Sarah Rule who writes really kind of magical plays. I think she won the Pulitzer in the last five years or so. She will oftentimes use stage directions. Um, she writes very poetic sort of stage directions. And sometimes the, the stage directions are overt changes of being. So she, she has a famous stage direction that says, it's, there's two characters, a man and a woman. I think they are... Um, in the dentist's office, they have just fir- they have just met, and the stage direction is they fall in love, which is so <laughs> uncommon for a stage direction. It's almost always, you know, enter John, exit Betsy, or whatever it is. But so she wrote, "They fall in love," and then, and I saw the play in <laughs> in Oregon, and it was it was a perfect stage direction because you watch the actors fall in love at that very moment it was just wonderful so they have to figure out a way to make that happen in terms of yeah yeah the the characters have to kind of fall in love up there during that moment but that's a very uncommon method for stage directions so if you look for example at um act two scene two um after mavolio leaves he comes and says um, you know, here's the ring. Remember, because remember, Olivia says, "Yes, take the ring." She go after her, take the ring, and all that. Um, Malvolio leaves the ring and says, "I'm not taking it back. Just keep it." And then we get this little monologue, I guess, from Viola, where she uh, or Viola. How do you, what do we say? What are you calling her? Do we have a way? Do we have, we have something settled on? My thing's Viola. Viola. Okay. Um, where she kind of is like reflecting on what Mm -hmm. just happened and then she kind of tells us she kind of just lays out the conflict if you will right yeah for much of the rest of the play um it it's there's no it's not happening between two people it's not happening through the drama it's literally happening through a character standing up there and and thinking yeah right um do you ever find, I mean, sometimes I find that this is a little distracting or a little uh-huh. bit, it's like, uh-huh. it makes me, it makes not, maybe not distracting, but disorienting is maybe the word. Angelina, do you ever feel the same way? I was thinking about that while you asked it. I, I don't know. Uh, it, it can't, it could be distracting. Depends if it's well done. What about disorienting? Is that a better word? It's disorienting in what, oh, in the sense like that, it kind of pulls you out of the story. Yeah. Yeah, that happens sometimes in movies or something where I think, oh, we have an awkward moment coming up. How on earth are you going to express what you need to express? And then yeah. sometimes it's awkward. Yeah. but Sometimes at least- it's that turn to the camera moment. Right, right, yeah. I mean, at least in a movie you can do, you know, you could do a voiceover. 
or you can at least have a montage or something like that. You can play with time, Mm -hmm. but in a play, you know, how do you, how do you reveal on the stage in particular or on the page? Let's, let's separate filmic adaptations of Shakespeare here, but on the stage or just in on the page, Shakespeare is giving us all this narrative that, that we could not really have intuited ourselves. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, that's what the soliloquy is, right? Right. I mean, and one of the rules of Shakespeare, which our, our readers might not know, is that no one ever lies in a soliloquy. So you can mm. trust that you're hearing the honest inner monologue. Now, sometimes they can be confused or tormented or deceived. It's not. But they're not purposely trying to deceive the audience. they're not purposely deceiving the audience. The audience. It's yeah. not an unreliable narrator situation. Right. They, in the sense that they're trying to trick you. They might be internally screwed up. Yeah. Like Hamlet. Hamlet. I was thinking the same but, thing. Right. But they're not trying to deceive us as the audience. Yes. Right. Okay. So. I guess what I mean when I say it's disorienting is, yeah, it pulls you out of the story a little bit. Um, but it's not something like I couldn't have read the first act and come out of it already believing that she was in love with Orsino, right? Because they have like seven lines No, together. that's true. Or that Olivia is in love with... with, um, with uh, what's Cesario. Cesario, yeah. So she basically has to come and tell us that. And in, in some ways, it's like the opposite of the whole mystery story thing, right? Where the, detect, where the author gives you everything so you could solve the crime too. Mm-hmm. Here, Shakespeare has to tie things together. Tim, do you think that that is... Is that Shakespeare giving his performers and the audience together that relationship some freedom to interact with one another? Is that what he's doing there? Or is he I just trying to so. move the plot along? No, no, I think he is... He's inviting the audience into the inner thoughts of his characters in a way that a novelist would. And I, you know, I also kind of find it a little bit unnerving at first, but now I've just kind of welcomed it as part of the genre that Shakespeare's working in. And it's also some of the, the things that we best remember Shakespeare for are oftentimes those soliloquies. I mean, Hamlet soliloquies are among the most known and revered writings of the English language. They're just absolutely magnificent. And Shakespeare, of all of his gifts, this might be the apex of his gifts. I mean, he's a great dramatist. Um, He's a great character builder. But he might be, more than anything else, the best writer of soliloquies, you know, that has ever held a pen. One... I have two thoughts about that. Actors are frequent to say that Shakespeare, there's no subtext in Shakespeare. And I think that... What, what does that mean? They mean Shakespeare's characters, for the most part, say what they want and they say what they mean. Whereas in most contemporary realism, characters are constantly what is on the surface is not necessarily what is under the surface. There's kind of a divorce between what's being said, what's being conveyed and what is felt. And I think that's part of the reason we're just much more at home with realism. That's the way that we all are. You know, we don't, we don't say everything that we think our motives are sometimes privy only to us but with Shakespeare, there are much more motives are stated as crystalline as they can be stated in the soliloquies and oftentimes during the dialogue with other characters. Hmm. 
So that's what that's what actors mean. There's no subtext. Now, actors, we're exaggerating when we say that. Of course, there's subtext in Shakespeare, but compared to, let's say, um, an Arthur Miller play like The Crucible or Death of a Salesman. Yeah, Death of the a one, Salesman. That's is the one almost, I was thinking of. It's almost all subtext, right? Right. You know, we we the great unveiling of the play is when we figure out that the father well, spoiler alert, has had an affair on uh, the mother and it has like, re- it's tainted his entire life. And it's even had like economic consequences for him. So it's like burrowed into his psyche. So with Shakespeare, um, it's not hidden from us. I mean, <laughs> I think of the opening of Richard III, the famous opening monologue, Now's the Winter of Our Discontent. He says everything that he's going to do in the play, and the play basically follows the plot that he lays out in his opening soliloquy. I'm rudely stamped and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton, ambling nymph. Um, He's so embarrassed of his appearance that basically he's going to go for what can, he's going to go for that thing that will make everybody esteem him, and that's the crown. And then he lays out, how he's going to get the crown. He just says all of it. And then part of the joy of it is that we get to watch it unfold, knowing exactly what he's going to do. And I think that's part of what's so fun about the soliloquies also is that he, Shakespeare, um, he has the characters take the audience into their confidence so that when Hamlet decides that he is going to play like an idiot to fool the king, we're in on it. It's like he's taking us with him. So, Angelina, I want to turn to you here for a second. Let's let's just take a step back and define things for a second. Can you just quickly, for those who are maybe unfamiliar with some of the terminology, so what is exactly is a soliloquy? And in your opinion, then, the follow-up is, what do you think makes a good soliloquy? Like, is, I mean, like what makes certain soliloquies oh, man, stand out? Hard. Okay, so a soliloquy is, is uh, as you would expect, solo, right, by yourself. So dialogue would be when two characters are talking back and forth, and soliloquy is when one character is talking to the audience. Sometimes that means the character is the only one on stage. Sometimes it's an aside. So they, other characters are on the stage, but they, they, the actor they turn has turned and faced the stage, and we as the audience are supposed to understand that the other characters cannot hear what's being said that only we can. So that would be the kind of thing that Tim's talking about where the actor is letting the audience in on his inner motivation or whatever, but the other characters would not, would not know, but very often they're the only one on the stage as, as well. So that is a, that's a soliloquy. What do you, what do you think makes a good one? I mean, we didn't prepare that. No, we did not. I don't, I don't even day. know how to answer that. I guess what, I don't know. I don't know how to answer it other than to say something that sounds kind of lame, really. Like just what makes a good soliloquy is when I, I hear the the honest inner inner world of the character. Hmm. Tim, do you agree with that? I do. And I would I would also add to the honesty, to the honest inner world of the character, I'd add it's beautiful. I think the soliloquies are just majestic music. They almost make, for me, they almost kind of like make me want to like physically move when they're, when I read them in the way that, that music makes me want to physically move. 
So like Shakespeare is amping it up, amping up the language a little bit for it's those. It's like the guitar solo, I guess. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it kind of is. That's a great comparison, Angelina. It's like a guitar solo. Hmm. One, I want to say one other thing. Shakespeare, um, I think that his use of soliloquy starts to kind of foreshadow um, modern understandings of psychology because they get later in his career, especially in the tragedies, the, the soliloquies start to get kind of broken and fragmented and um, they don't just operate on a logical chain the way that, let's say, a syllogism does. They start to actually operate the way that we think as he gets deeper into his career. So if you compare, I'll, I'll use Richard III's opening monologue because it's so well known. Now is the winter of our discontent. It's, it's a straight chain of logic. It's A and then B and then conclusion, I will act C. Okay. But with someone like Hamlet and even Othello, Hamlet's thoughts are interrupting him. Um, and his, so the opening soliloquy by Hamlet, he is, he's talking about basically everything that has happened up until this point in Danish history. Um, his father has died. His mother has married his uncle. And he keeps getting interrupted by but three, oh, what is it? But three months dead. Nay, not so much, not even three. Um, it's like this obsession keeps affecting him, like something almost from his subconscious comes up and is just, it keeps thrusting itself into his mind. And of course, we realize when the ghost shows up in Hamlet that there was no reason that his subconscious was so infiltrated something was not right something was rotten in denmark and hamlet knew it but he knew it on a level that he couldn't quite articulate and i think the soliloquies start to kind of show that whereas the earlier soliloquies beautiful rhythmic um just a pleasure to the ear and full of profound truth and honesty but they operate much more um this is, this sounds crude, but like a math proposition almost a and then B and then C. Mm. Well, no, that's not crude at all. I mean, that, that's something that the metaphysical poets did on, on purpose. I mean, they're a little bit later than, than Shakespeare, but it, it's still a Renaissance idea. The syllogism, a lot of the poems were syllogisms, especially the love poems. I like to call it seduction by syllogism in my classes, <laughs> which my students find interesting. You know, if this, you know, then this, therefore, bada bing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> Well, but, the, and, you know, interestingly, let's look at the, um, this, this, I want to say syllogism, the <laughs> soliloquy from act two, scene two then, because this is the first real soliloquy we get in the play. I think I could be wrong on that. It's certainly the only one of this act, the where Viola speaks here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, when she kind of turns to us and speaks. Yeah, Cause she kind of does that. She kind of yeah. goes through this. If then she's thing. the only one on the stage too. Angelina, would you like to read this for us? The one I left no ring with her. Yeah. Cause it's like, what is that? 20 lines. Okay. But I'll read it like an English teacher, not an actor. My that, apologies. That's fine. <laughs> I left no ring with her. What means this lady fortune forbid my outside have not charmed her. 
She made a good view of me, indeed so much that methought her eyes had lost her tongue. That's such a good line. Yeah. For she did speak in starts distractedly. She loves me, sure. The cunning of her passion invites me in this churlish messenger. None of my lord's ring? Why, he sent her none. I am the man. If it be so as tis. Can I, can I pause? Mm -hmm. So I want to, so like what she's doing here is kind of like what you're saying. She's, she's kind of contemplating these things that have happened and drawing a conclusion on them. Right. Yes. So she made good view of me. My me thought her eyes had lost her tongue. Therefore, right, right. she I, didn't speak. The Therefore, she loves me. Sure, and I'm the man. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And it's like to, to interrupt Angelina for a second. Why well, he sent none? I am the man. Conclusion. And mm -hmm. now a new chain of reasoning begins. If it be if. so, as his. Yeah. yeah and so yeah. that's in the if then. If it be so. As tis, poor lady, she were better love a dream, which, of course, that's thematically very, very significant. Um, disguise, I see thou art a wickedness, wherein the pregnant enemy does much. How easy is it for the proper false in woman's waxen hearts to set their forms? Alas, our frailty is the cause, not we. For such as we are made of, such we be. How would this fadge? My master loves her dearly, and I, poor monster, fond as much on him, and she, mistaken, seems to dote on me. So she's and she, there. She did. She kind of like sets the conflict of the play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She just the states it for us. Yeah. Yep. What will become of this? So there you go. That's the rest of the play. What will become yep, of exactly. this? Exactly. Yep. Um, as I am a man, my state is desperate for my master's love. As I am a woman, now alas the day, what thriftless sigh shall poor Olivia breathe? Oh, time, thou must untangle this, not I. It is too hard a knot for me to untie. Which really, you're right. This is the play in a microcosm. This is what a conflict does. It tangles up all the characters, yep. and then you have it to un untangle unfurls. them. And it's doing the same thing as the Richard thing. She's basically saying, this play is going to be about me, about this love triangle, mm -hmm. creating the, getting all tangled and then being untangled. And the only way we're going to unfurl it is by the time that these next several, the next slew of yeah. take. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I'm fascinated by the fact that she says that. She says, this is what the play is going to be about. And then scene three is about whom? Not her. Not, not her. This. It's not even about them at all. It's about this whole other crew of motley fools. <laughs> I think yeah, it's, it's, so we kind of take what the play is going to be as an audience. Shakespeare asks us to kind of like put it in a holding cell for a moment. Uh, yeah, I agree. Entertain, entertain us. That, but, but, but that fits what she's saying. Only time can untangle this, and then it's like it pauses. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, can, I want to ask a question about that then, because I, I did a little math. I was, I was thinking about this while he I was He did. Reading. He got so mathy earlier. It's I, very okay. unnerving. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I mean, I'm not 100% sure. He's like counting Shakespeare lines. I didn't know where we were To going be to fair, this. I had to use a calculator, <laughs> and I'm not 100% sure these numbers are correct. But, okay, so, so I, was, I was thinking about this while I was reading. Why are the scenes with Viola, Olivia, Orsino so short? And why are the ones with Sir Toby, Maria, Andrew, Matt, huh. so long? So I figured out that in Act 2, there are 567 total lines by my count I mean, over the course of the five scenes or whatever it is. 394 of them focus primarily on Toby and his crew. That's 69%. In Act 1, it's 48% of the lines that are mainly taken up by that crew of secondary fools in a sense. And I, I mean, I'm using fools loosely. I'm not using it in the, you know, the Shakespearean fool clown 
term. Well, maybe I should use something more precise. Um, the idiots, uh, whatever you want to call comic, them. The, the comic element? Sir Toby and his crew, yeah. So the slapstick comic yeah, the, element? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what I'm, what I'm curious about is, and especially I'm curious about after unraveling her soliloquy there, why in a play that is not, that seems right. sensibly to be about Orsino, Olivia, and Viola and their love triangle, why do these characters take up more than half of the play? What is their role? What is their purpose? Why are they okay, so, so important? So I think there's both a practical answer to that question and a thematic answer to that question. Okay, let's talk practical first. Tim, you want to take that one? My practical answer might be a little different than yours. I'd like to hear yours. Well, my practical answer is the the idea that Shakespeare operates on two levels because he's got an <laughs> audience that he's writing for. And so, you know, it's that's the tension that everybody who has to earn money as an artist has, right? Like, how do I appeal to my audience but also have some kind of artistic vision? How do I appeal to the pit at the Globe? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. how do I earn a buck, right? He's got to yeah. fill the seats. And so there's a lot of slapstick. There's a lot of uh, physical humor in a great many of the plays. Um, and and uh, a lot of very body humor, as yeah. we have said before, uh, and and so that is that's gonna that's gonna fill in a lot of the seats. That's just gonna keep the audiences coming. It's very funny, um, but it's not high art. I mean, if if all Shakespeare did was the pratfalls, the slapsticks, and the dirty jokes, we wouldn't still be reading him. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they're, they're um, within a larger context. Yeah. Right. But they are funny. It's just that's not the only thing he's about. Mm. But he does have to be about this somewhat. Mm. Yeah. I do think I w one of the things that when I was in college um, and I was studying with a professor who spent a lot of time in England, um, not as a performer, but just studying the historical documents and looking at uh, the, the way the globe looks now compared to when it was then. And for those of you who don't know, the globe is the, the famous theater in London, right? Is it, Lon is it in London? Yeah, I think so. Where um, Shakespeare, many of Shakespeare plays were, were put on. And the, you can find pictures online. I recommend you go Google it. And Tim, you can correct me if well, either of you correct me if I'm wrong. But the poor people would stand down on the ground level, right? The pit. And then everybody else would be up on like... Weren't those the penny seats? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. And, then, and then the rich people and the, the royalty and whoever else would sit up in the balconies. Is that correct? Yes. And wouldn't the ones in the pit, wouldn't they buy tomatoes and stuff to throw? Yeah, they would... Yeah, because if they didn't, yeah, how else would you going to let someone know you didn't like their performance? I still, I still do that at the theater. I mean, they escort me out, but hey, <laughs> just being Shakespearean, they don't understand. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so one of the things that I was struck by was the extent to which he actually really did think about the poor people. I'm going to, I mean, some of them were poor to varying degrees, of course, but the poor people who were down on the floor in the penny seats in the pit. Um, and, you know, I think there's letters and things like that even that show how much he cared about that. Um, he made sure everyone had a good time. And that is part of his that is part of his genius, in my opinion. Right. Because anybody can have a slapstick pratfall dirty joke, but he does it in a way that is in harmony with the rest of the play. So, I mean, the, these scenes are funny, but they're not just throw it. Like, you couldn't just take those scenes out and say, we're just going to have the art part. Right. And we're going to take all that stuff out. It wouldn't work. It, it, it actually serves a purpose here for pacing, for for thematic subplot yeah. reasons. I mean, he, they're being funny, but they're and they're and silly, but they're being funny and silly in a way that actually is thematically consistent with the whole play. I mean, that's th this is why he's so brilliant. 
They're not just tripping and falling down and, you know, their skirt falls over their head and everybody laughs. I mean, there's a purpose to it. Yeah. Tim, do you want to talk about the practice, your opinion on the practical side as well before we jump into those themes? Yeah, I, I want to echo what Angelina said, that they are, they seem kind of flippant and off point. But think about what happens in the last scene of Act Two. The trap is being laid for Malvolio. Right. And it's, it's funny. It's really funny. And it's slapstick and it's silly. But by the end of it, like everybody knows that Malvolio, who's kind of the biggest, if there's an enemy, an obstacle in the play, he's that guy. Um, and now the audience knows that he is walking into his, his desire for um, prestige and to be a great man and his sort of love for his mistress um, are going to be undone, you know, and it's done in such a, such a funny way. Mm. David, your point about the number of lines, my hunch is that the lines of those slapstick scenes are going to go at roughly the same at roughly twice the speed on the stage as let's say mm-hmm. the, uh, the um, soliloquy that like, because they're going to deliver Angelina. them so quickly. So quick. I mean, just yeah. even when we read them, we just like Angelina immediately and rightly read the lines very slowly. I left no ring with her. What means this lady? Yeah. They're contemplative. Mm-hmm. They are. And she's, yeah. she's, she's thinking, thinking about what's going like on. And if she paces through that soliloquy, well, our audience doesn't, get to kind of reason alongside her. Uh, but yeah. when Sir Toby and his crew comes on, we're not they're there to really no read. Thinking. They're not doing any thinking. No, exactly. These are the scenes where you're laughing so hard you missed half of the lines. That's that, yeah. it's that, great. You don't even really mind that you miss half them. The only reason you get quiet from laughing is so you don't miss another laugh line. And I was thinking about that last scene. I mentioned this to Angelina before we started. I love how when they're making fun of Malvolio, he's giving this like this like grand speech, you know? But uh-huh. probably if I was in the audience, the funniest parts is at first Toby's telling his friends, oh, shut up, shut up. He'll, he'll, he'll hear us. And then Toby starts getting so mad that he starts shouting out, you know, I'm going to kill him. And then his friends, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then by the end of it, Sir Andrew's like, oh, he's talking about me. And then he says something about how Sir Andrew's terrible. And then, and then, uh, and Sir Andrew says, see, I told you he was talking about me. Yeah. And those are the lines that even more than Malvolio is like on the stage. I bet the bang, 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 the timing, those guys, the three stooges nature of those three guys oh, yes. is probably yeah. the, the funniest thing. But I love your point about the speed of that, that they would take, they would happen so much faster. And therefore those, that's part of why there's more lines. Yeah. That's a great point. For me, one of the best examples of this in Shakespeare of kind of intersplicing <laughs> something humorous and slapsticky is uh, Macbeth. I suspect it's probably end of act two. No, it's probably the beginning of act three, the Porter scene in Macbeth. Mm-hmm. So what happens is Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are conspiring to kill the king. The king comes to their castle you know, he's basically in their clutches and end, if I'm not mistaken, the end of act two is Macbeth disappearing into the room of the king, where we all know by this point, because he's soliloquized about it and he and Lady Macbeth have argued about it, he's going to kill the king, disappears into the chamber of the king. And who comes out next? The, the porter, 
the porter is coming out. He's waking up. He's like in his nightgown. And he's up and about because he hears someone knocking. And what does the porter do? The porter makes a long series of jokes about how awful it is after a night of terrible drinking to have to wake up and you've got a piece so badly that you can't stay, you can't stay asleep anymore. So this is in the middle of a regicide. Like a regicide is happening. And we've got basically like urine jokes going on on the stage. It's literal and potty humor. <laughs> it's literal potty humor. You're like, if anybody, it, it's like, if you just thought about it in those terms, you'd be like, Shakespeare is an idiot to even try this. Hmm. But he doesn't just try it. He pulls it off. And part of the reason that he pulls it off is because this knocking, which I don't think is actually a stage direction, it's only given us given to us through dialogue, I yeah, think. Yeah, they hear the, what is that knocking? What is that knock? Knock, 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 says the porter. Knock, knock, knock. So while the porter is giving this long potty humor um, soliloquy slash monologue, we hear this knocking. And so two things are happening in us at the same time. We're growing anxious because someone is at the gate and we don't know who that person is. And the king has probably just been killed and while that's happening, we're getting potty jokes. It's like, it's so breathtakingly risky and it, yeah, it's wonderful. You could, risky, but you he could has, take, go ahead, go ahead. Well, he has to, he does that. And it's like the more intense the play, the more he does that because you have to have these breaks in the audience Yeah. because it's too yeah. hard to draw that tension out for two hours. As we know, that's why we have these, you know. 85 minute horror films now it's very difficult to keep that tension up for a long time so you have to keep breaking it for the audience and then building it back up again yeah yeah great point okay let's talk well we didn't talk about the thematic no, so purpose I was just gonna of say, the scene three okay. let's talk about the thematic purpose of the uh i gotta come up with a term for these guys for sir toby's crew <laughs> the three stooges for the yeah three stooges so t what do you what are your thoughts on that are you asking Tim or me? Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm you said you know, Tim yeah. and pointed to me, so that was weird. <laughs> did I say Tim? I thought what, you did. What are you what are your thoughts on that, Angelina? Yeah, I'm in the room with Angelina, so like I can just point at her. He's pointing, but Tim speak, can't see it. Okay, speak now. I've been pointed at. I feel like I raised my hand and got permission, so I'm gonna talk. Now. <laughs> uh, well, there's a lot going on in terms of theme. So, we talked last time about the topsy turvy upside down world and that everybody's drunk on emotion, and so these guys are literally drunk. Okay, mm. so it so it's it's a mirror of the drunken emotion. So they're over. And it the makes top. them incapable of controlling themselves. Yes. So so it's 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 an image. Okay, well, how do I want to say this? It's like an acting out in this drunken revelry. It's an objective correlative. Well, yeah, right. It shows what's going on inside the hearts of these people who are all thinking they're in love, yeah. right? That this yeah. is what it's like. They're just drunk and they're crazy. So you're saying that these these Toby's crew represent they're mirroring the emotion the, the, the incarnation of the emotion of the serious characters yes okay yes so they 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 fit and that's why they flip back and forth because they're doing the same thing it's the same kind of revelry um malvolio well malvolio is interesting for a lot of reasons but yeah, yeah. um you, you said uh, what oh, i forgot what i wanted to say about that maybe if i start at the beginning about malvolio i'll remember what i wanted to say oh about him being a servant and and now is his chance to possibly mm. rise so that yeah. also fits the topsy-turvy theme right because mm. everything's upside down a servant has forgotten his place and he's aspiring to be higher than he than he should be right so mm. that's also so that fits in that but 
what's interesting about Mal Malvolio, again, because Shakespeare is that he's pairing up all of these things, just so everything's so brilliantly structured and, and mirrored. Like, for example, we didn't talk about this, but I, I want to say it. In scene yeah. one, when Sebastian is found and he says his sister is drowned and he is drowning in tears. But the other character that is drowning in tears is Olivia. Olivia is drowning in tears over her dead brother. Sebastian is drowning in tears over his presumed dead sister. So, so you know already, boom, these are going to be mirrored in some way. Yeah, yeah. He's going to be doing something with these characters. They're going to go somewhere. Um, Malvolio, when you first look at him, he seems like he's the total opposite of them. Right. Mm -hmm. So if they are, he seems like Jeeves. He's, yes. He's almost the anti-type of the revelers you think, cause he's super serious. Right. So mm -hmm. if they are levity, he is gravity. Mm. And so he sets them up as opposites, except that if they are extreme emotion in one way, he is extreme emotion in the other way. He's too serious. He's too uptight. That's why he's a Puritan. And they're using it in the same sense that we use today when we call somebody a Puritan, that they're too uptight. They're too moralistic. And, and they've lost a sense of proportion. That's a medieval idea right there, too, that, that somebody who's so rigid in something that they've lost the sense of proportion and that what you have to do to remedy that is to laugh at them. Hmm. And so now he's going to be the butt of the joke. And the whole point is they're mad at him because he keeps coming out saying, keep it down. You know, he's that guy at the party. Keep it down. She's going to really be mad. She's in there trying to mourn her dead brother. She doesn't like you being drunk. I'm going to get her to throw you out. And so now they're going to play a practical joke on him because he's way too uptight for this party bunch. Hmm. But in playing the joke on him, okay, which Shakespeare mm -hmm. uses this joke a lot of making people think someone's in love with them, right? And what always yeah. happens- Much to do about nothing. That's right. He's, he's going to go from being the super uptight guy who knows his place in the world and is reminding them of their place in the world. You're only here, Sir Toby, by her good grace, right? Like, you know, don't forget who you are. I'll get you thrown out of here. Mm -hmm. They're, they're going to turn that on his head and he's going to totally forget his place. He's going to start drowning in emotion. He's going to be in love with the idea of who he can become. And, and that's what's going to be so funny about it. I love, it seems so much like all these people are as much as people are in love with the idea. Mm -hmm. In love with ideas. Yeah. Is in, he's not in love with Olivia. He's in love with the idea of what Olivia could mean for him. Oh, yeah. He gets, he gets to sit on the throne if Olivia loves him. It's like he seems to be more, in not a literal throne, but he gets, right. Right, right. He gets everyone to bow down and kiss his ring. That's right. right. He can yeah. exchange the chain, which they've all been reminding him of. That's his steward's chain. So they're reminding when, when um, Sir Toby says, go polish your chain. That's an insult to remember mm -hmm. your place. Remember mm -hmm. your place. You can't be talking to me like that. You're the servant. You go remember your place. And Sir Andrew, in the same way, is almost really only interested in Olivia because of the money, right? Because of the money, because he needs to for stature and things like that. Um, and he so he's like, He's but but he doesn't take himself seriously. He doesn't really take anything seriously. He doesn't really know anything. <laughs> he's just kind of an idiot. Um, and so in some ways he's kind of the in some ways he's the opposite of Malvolio mm -hmm. in terms of how they view themselves in the world. But they're ultimately sort of the same. They have the same trajectory. The same sort of like they both neither of them. One takes things too seriously. One doesn't take anything seriously. But yes. they both view this beautiful, wealthy woman for what they can, she can do for them. Yeah, and they're both wrong. And that's actually a technique that Shakespeare uses in a ton of plays. He loves to take two uh, opposing extremes of an idea and then show that they're both wrong and offer a third way. 
to harmonize it. Hmm. So uh, lots of plays will have um, the anti-romantic versus the ultra-romantic, right? Somebody who's just in love with being in love. That's the ultra-romantic. And then the anti-romantic. Much to do about nothing. Yes. And Benedict also, and Claudius. Also, yes, yes. And also Romeo and Juliet. So hmm. the nurse is the anti-romantic kind of body. <laughs> Everything's just going to be physical for her, Romeo and Juliet or the ultra-romantic type. So he likes to oppose those um, because culturally that would have been a debate, right? What's love? Is it mm. all this sentiment or is it that you marry somebody for money and position and safety? Or mm. is it you, you just fall in love with a girl because she's really hot? Yeah. <laughs> or, I mean, Romeo's not about that, right? It's all the, it's all the stars and the moon yeah. and the whole, the whole thing. And then, but his friend Mercutio is all about, no, that's not what's so That's not what you're really in love with. And so you have all yeah. this tension, but Shakespeare almost, almost always on the plays will, will say both of them are wrong. They're mm. both wrong. The harmony somewhere else. I, one thing I, I think is really interesting is how he'll create these, you mentioned pairs earlier. So we've talked about how there's like these triangles and you've got the three stooges, yeah. you've got Olivia, Orsino, Viola, but then you've also got the Sebastian, Olivia comparison that you just drew. There's the Viola and Orsino comparison. And then of course, Sebastian and Viola are twins. Sebastian, yeah. So you've got triangles, like it's the geometry mm -hmm. of it, right? You've got the triangles and then the pairs. And then how do all these interlocking pairs uh, compare with each other and relate to each other? And then where does the triangle fit into that? And is that gonna? Is it all gonna unfurl into one straight line with like, with like symmetry and balance and harmony, and everything's gonna be clean at the end, or, or who's gonna be left hanging? You know, because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in some in a love triangle, it doesn't. There's not good math there. <laughs> you know, someone's gonna be unless it's Twilight. You can magically well, marry the child of. The <laughs> <coughs> well, right. Our listeners who've never read Twilight, just forgive me. That's like that's my that's my go-to example of a horrible Deus ex machina of, a, of a, an author who creates a love triangle and then chooses just to refuse to resolve it. it just yeah. says, "No, I'll just make up a thing." But so that means you know, so in, somebody is left out in a, in the love triangle, right? Right. Of the of least of those three. So right. how does Shakespeare resolve all that? How's he going to resolve it? Yeah. It? Yeah. yeah. Um, which is what. Olivia is asking. That's right. right. How are we going to untangle this knot? Yeah. I can't. I can't untangle it. Yeah, yeah. I also love when he doesn't hit a harmony, as Angelina describes. He res he puts characters in opposition to each other, and one of them is right, and one of them is you know a fool, or he's kind of lost himself. Um, and the audience knows in those situations which one. Shakespeare is with. Um, so an example, Duke Orsino is talking to Viola, thinking that she is a he, and he lectures her on kind of oh. the way that men's love is and the way that women's yes. love is. And it's in the audience, of course, knows her identity. They know that she's not a man. They know that um, he's, he's giving this kind of like advice about a man's heart that a woman uh, is different than a woman. A woman could never experience this. And you're like, well, she's, she's privy to this whole thing. So um, Viola comes back and she's kind of trying to break the, the news to him that Olivia might not end up falling in love with you. And Duke Orsino, and she's like, you know, maybe you should just get prepared for that. And Duke Orsino just says, I'm not going to get prepared for that. There's no woman's sides can beat the beating of so strong a passion as doth love give my heart. No woman's heart so big to hold so much. They lack retention. 
Alas, their love may be called appetite, no motion of the liver, but the palate that suffers surfeit, cloyment, and revolt, but mine is all as hungry as the sea and can digest as much. Make no compare between that love a woman can bear me and that I owe Olivia. And he's saying it to the woman who loves him. That's right. And she says, but if you said to me that I could never love you, I would have to accept that, right? (laughs) Right. She's the one that's actually showing that her heart does not lack retention. So are we supposed to, as an audience... You know how are we supposed to is is Viola our the person who we put in ourselves in their shoes? Like is she our protagonist? Our protagonist? Is she our the person who we root for and all that? I mean, I know there's so many characters, but do you is that how you feel about her? How, either of you feel about her? Or I mean, because Arsino is the first character we get, and you've got Olivia, and I mean, is, is Viola kind of our straight person who we? Sort I think of, that Viola is the straight person. I think she's the she's the one person who's not overcome by emotion right she has she she has these feelings and she's restrained and she's the lodge she's the one who's explaining everything to she us. is she's, she's the logical one she's also the go-between by the two houses so that's something else we didn't talk about the parallels between the duke she house, literally goes between she's them. the little go-between so you've got the two houses the duke's house and you've got olivia's house yeah, right yeah. and we've already talked about the duke and olivia and the parallels though but it's also true about their two houses right so the two spirits of the houses so the two people who go between the two houses are viola and the fa- the clown, the fool. That's it, right? Right, and yeah. and so and he's but he's wise, right? He's the one who's being sensible, and he goes back and forth and talks to them, and and there's some interesting kind of ideas about him being kind of cast <laughs> off and missing for a while, and it's almost like, well, wisdom's been missing for a while. I don't know where he is, and now we're everything's topsy turvy. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So you've got that there, and then, um, but okay, so you have the love triangle, but you have another element. It's disguise as part of the problem here. Okay, that she's in disguise. That's and and disguise is used a ton in Shakespeare plays. And yeah, and she says she talks about a vile that it's talks the curse, about right? disguise mm-hmm. in the that soliloquy. Yes, right. She says disguise. disguise. I, I see that on a wickedness, wickedness uh-huh. wherein the pregnant enemy does much. Okay, so if if our Patreon sponsors have uh, taken uh, um, advantage of the listening to my downloads of my talks, you know that I gave a talk about the disguise motif in Shakespeare plays and in a bunch of plays. Um, this summer in in Austin. So that's my most, not my most recent talk, I guess, but one of my most recent talks. And um, that one's the Remembering Who You Are talk where I go through the whole disguise motif and what's that about. So that's in a lot of Shakespeare plays. And and he's-, he's Practically all of them. Practically all, especially the comedies. And, and there's a lot of things that are going on, but one of the things that is going on is that it's <laughs> the disguise element is connected to the theme of self-knowledge. And these- these comedies are almost always a movement from someone not knowing who they are to figuring out who they are. And so they're in disguise, so they literally are not who they are. She really is not herself, right? She's lost herself. It's, there's a sense in which Viola is dead, hmm. right? She dies in sea and Cesario is born, right? And so that has changed everything. Which, she, she can't act on her love because she's in disguise, et cetera, et cetera. And I love how that's drawn out at the end of this scene that Tim's reading, scene four, where Viola and the Duke are still talking after what Tim read there. And she is, she is, she says, she's referring to herself as a man, right? Mm-hmm. So she says, um, how her, she's talking about her sister, yes. right? But she, you my know, she's, my father ref- had a daughter, but she's exactly, she's, she, yeah, my father had a daughter. She's referring to herself, but she's talking about her as if she had died. Well, she says, is he, is she still alive? And she says, my father has no other daughter. Oh yeah, right, right, right. I love yeah, that. Clever, yeah. yeah, so clever. I am all the daughters of my father's house. Yes, right? yes. So, oh, so, so good. clever. So 
I like And that. she talks about how she says she never told her love, but let concealment like a worm in the bud feed on her damask cheek. Mm. How exactly mm-hmm. how to say that word? She pined in thought. And with a green and yellow melancholy, she sat like patience on a monument, smile, smiling at grief. Was not this love indeed? Uh, no, so no. Chal- that's she's but challenging. The picture, but the, so this is what I wrote in the margin. It's the picture of restraint. So right. in a play about excess and excess of emotion and what is real, according to the Duke and Olivia, is this excess of sentiment. Viola says, no, isn't real love restraint? Mm. Like I, I've the, controlled the, the image of a monument being. Yes. Yeah. And, and that I, I sit here and I keep all this emotion inside mm. and I don't act on it. Yeah. Because I know I can't. Isn't that love? Mm. We and then she refers to herself as a man, right? Mm-hmm. To to what to your point, right? She can't reveal who her true self is. She know she Viola actually knows who she is. She does. So it's but a she little bit of a different it. play. It's a different twist on the self knowledge thing. I agree. Viola always knows who she but is, she, but no one else does. But in 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 making us realize that she doesn't know, she knows who she is, but she can't reveal it. It helps us see that Orsino really has no idea what he's talking about or who he yes. is. Yes, and Olivia. Because they says, don't know themselves. Right, right, right. He, she, after, he goes into this whole thing about how men have the greatest loves, right? Like women are not capable of loving the way I do, mm-hmm. right? It's this ridiculous line. And then... Except she, that it was historically believed, but I can follow up on that next. But okay. okay. But then she says, we men say more. So she's referring to herself as a man, swear more. But indeed, our shows are more than will. For still we prove much in our vows, but little in our love. And then he just goes on. But did she die? <laughs> Did she die of love? And then he's like, <laughs> I'm all man. the daughter, I'm all the daughters of my father's house. And then um, he says, All the brothers too, and yet I know not. Sir, shall and then she says, Sure, shall I have the, to the lady's house? And he's like, Yeah, go go take care of my business, right? And then it just ends so fast. She's got these brilliant, creative, clever lines, and then he just doesn't care in it ends. And but so she, but it points out the amount, the degree to which the Duke really is full of nonsense, right? He doesn't know himself and he doesn't understand. The complexity of love, right? And there's also this contrast, right? The Duke is in love with Olivia, who he never <coughs> is in her presence. But Viola is in love with Duke because she's actually in his presence. Like, yeah. she actually sees him. Yeah. So there's she's a in real love with a person. person mm-hmm. And the Duke's in love with an idea. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so this, so this idea of who loves more, this was a Renaissance idea. This was a debate. There's a lot of poems about constancy. John Donne has poems about it. Shakespeare has Which, poems about it. You had mentioned constancy previously to me, and I was thinking how constancy, like, is the opposite of disguise, right? Yes, and and the opposite of all this excess of emotion. Right. Hmm. Yeah. So you got so it's the opposite of the up and down nature of yes allowing your emotions to control you, but it's also the opposite. Like when you're in a disguise, you're not constant to who you are. No. Right. Yes. Is that am I? I mean, I know that's probably not what you were saying, but it just strikes no, me. No. Yeah. It's, I, another, I, it's I, another level. It's another it. level. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, uh, so a lot of the poems would be about the fact that women were inconstant, that it was men who can love constantly and forever and true. And just, it's all what the Duke is saying. The poems were about that. And that's women who are fickle and inconstant and, you know. So oh. is Shakespeare turning that on his head? Is he believe that women actually are capable of this or is he just I, I thinking think, that it's I ridiculous? I think we need to see what happens there because it's hard for me not to read these lines as him making fun of that idea because because of what's going to happen in the play, right? Who's going to end up being the constant one and who's going to end up being all of the, the inconstant ones. Or maybe he's saying it's not a gender thing hmm. because I'm thinking about how it's going to end. So maybe it's not a gender thing, but hmm. um, 
but he's definitely playing with all of those ideas because we're less. So the Duke is given the Renaissance spiel, right? Oh, come on. We all know it's men who are capable of the greater love, but the, the joke's on him because in the scene, Viola is clearly the one capable of the greater love and it's really a woman. But then, then you know, he's kind of like nudging her with the elbow. You know us guys, right? Nudge, nudge. We know, yeah. <laughs> we know how to love. <laughs> and then I, didn't I just imagine her all like sad and forlorn? Like, yes, yes, we do. <laughs> um you know shakespeare is a this is one of the parts of his legacy um is how egalitarian he seems to be how, how much of a kind of um a vanguard for the things that we love about the modern age um so there's been a great equaling of men and women in you know modern in modern United States that was not the case during his day. There's a great um, understanding that regardless of religious differences, there should be equal rights given to different religious groups. The the famous play, of course, touching that subject is Merchant of Venice. Shakespeare says to Christendom, ought not this Jew, Shylock, have the same rights as you? And he makes him a very, very, though faulted character, a very real character. I mean, this famous, beautiful uh, reply that Shylock gives to his two Christian interlocutors, hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions, um, if you prick a student, we not bleed. Are we not warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer as a Christian is? And they're all rhetorical questions. We know the answer to it. Mm-hmm. Not popular questions to ask in his day. Um, and so, so many, we look back at Shakespeare as kind of leading the way. And I always think about like what would have happened to the world if Shakespeare had never existed? Like how different would our world be? There's and not a lot of people you can ask that about and know definitively that it would have been just incredibly different. Yes, I know. Oh, just the words we speak would be so different. Yeah, exactly. And, and deeper than that, like how much of lines like that from <laughs> Merchant of Venice or how much of the kind of interplay between Duke Orsino and Viola, the kind of, wink that Shakespeare gives us about, if not the equality of the sexes, at least the capacity, the mutual capacity of both the sexes. Like, it's so hard to to estimate the effect that that has on a culture that reads them. And yet I, oh, it's just, it's, so it's hard to calculate, but it's also, you just know that if Shakespeare had never lived, we would, we would be impoverished in a way that it's hard to calculate, but we would just be more impoverished today. We wouldn't be, the three of us would be less wealthy culturally today, not just because he wrote beautiful lines, because he kind of affected our conscience. Hmm. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, 
we're, we're touching on a lot of things that that are kind of hot button topics in Shakespeare scholarship, but one of them is the issue of Shakespeare and women. And you know, some some people take a hard line that Shakespeare is a misogynist. I can't even wrap my head around that. Yeah, me neither. Because it's just I'm like, have you read the plays? But, but so many female characters who are empowered. They are, but but okay, so there are ones that are burdened as well but maybe part of the problem is that shakespeare doesn't he's not always tidy with his endings and he's not always going to mm -hmm. come out and say right like uh, viola is not going to stand up and give a shylock speech about the equality of the sexes that's not going to happen mm -hmm. right but it, it's going to be much more in the duke is given this sexist speech but we all know the jokes on him so shakespeare right. doesn't have to come out and say he's wrong everybody we all know and we're laughing well, at him. and that subtlety that subtext if you will is what makes him enduring right Yes. Because it's not just the humor or the drama of the scene itself. It's the bigger ideas that we can chew on and contemplate for 400 years afterwards and will continue to do so until people stop speaking English. Mm. Or after that, too, probably. And, and when he's making the speech to Viola, I mean, there's so many different levels operating. On the one hand, it's funny, and you think, oh, you idiot. Right? Yeah. But then on the other hand, there's all this pathos because you just want, oh, your heart breaks for Viola, right? Like, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. this, oh, you There's know? the joke, but also the, 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 your heartstrings. Yes, and cool. it wouldn't work if she wasn't in disguise as a as a man. So because he thinks he's speaking to another man, if we're up, you know, we're having an honest conversation between the sexes in a way that would never have happened. Yeah. If he thought he was talking to a woman. Yeah, he'd be condescending or whatever. Well, and, and well, he'd be playing the part of the lover too, maybe. Yeah. And, and so one of the things that we, I can't find where I underlined it, but somewhere someone talks about the melancholy. Your giant. I know. Sixty pounds. I know. In my, the is it the melancholy my, god, Angelina? Yes, that was yeah. the line. Thank you, the melancholy god. So I wanted to kind of explain what that was all about. Um, so you have this Renaissance idea that I like to tell my students. So it's, the uh, line seventy-three okay. in uh, in uh, two point four, where the clown says it. Yes. Yeah. Now the melancholy god protects thee. Yeah, yes. so the, the clown has been singing to the oh, Duke. Yeah, to the Duke. So the melancholy god. Okay, so as I like to tell my students, the Renaissance man was very much like, you know, the emo singer. Like they <laughs> understood the pain of love and, 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 the, and also the joy of being sad. Hmm. And so that's what that's about. So there was this idea that if you were in, and this is why they were all into like tragic love and everything. If, if you were in love, it caused you pain as well as joy. But it was like a joyful pain to think about the person you loved. And so you'd sit around and be all sad well, and emo about being in love. Am I wrong in thinking that even beyond just love, almost all of the emotions or, or things tied to emotions were negative metaphors often? Like, there, like even okay, yeah. met certain metaphors of love. Excessive emotion, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, go on. Sorry. No, no. I mean, that's about all I wanted to say. Same thing, but just that's why love is going to be associated with melancholy. So Duke Orsino is just an over-the-top, you know, characterization of a lover, right? He says, I can't, I'm so, I'm in pain because of my love. Play me some music. Okay, we've all been there, right? You're so in love. You can't cope with your emotions. You just got to listen to some love songs. Um, and so he's doing that. And then he's also feeling the pain of being in love and he's, but he's cultivating the pain of being in love. Yeah. That's part of the pleasure. Right. Yeah. He, he's got to maintain it. I think what's that, that whole line is interesting though, from the clown. Now the melancholy God protect thee and the tailor makes a doublet of changeable taffeta. Mm -hmm. so <laughs> my mind is a yes. very opal. Yeah. And like the, I, my thing has a note here. I mean, I think Shakespeare's doing a play on words there with changeable. Oh, absolutely. Cause got, he goes on to say, I would have men of such constancy put to sea. That's the constancy yeah. theme. Yeah. That their business might be everything and their intent everywhere. 
for that's it that always makes a good voyage of nothing. Mm, that, uh, yep. And the changeable, my, my, um, my book says that that's, i.e. opalescent in effect. Yeah, changeable means that. Colors. Yeah, so you got the idea of like the changing colors and then that plays into, you know, the, the idea of not being constant as a person. Yeah. But the doublet being the tailor make your doublet, the thing you're actually wearing to change colors. And if it's a, there it's a fascinating is, image. If we can say that there is one metaphor that is the most essential metaphor to understanding Shakespeare, more and there's a lot of metaphors, but if there's one more than any other, it's clothes. Hmm which ties into disguise. And here you see the changeable taffeta. Uh, so what he's wearing is changeable. His mind is also opal. He's just an inconstant changeable man. Because the changeable taffeta, it's like an iridescent. So depending on the light, it looks a different color. Mm -hmm. and, and we're going to see if the Duke is in fact just like that. Like, is he going to change like that? Mm -hmm. So, okay, let's, let's wrap it up with this. Um, I want to, instead of asking you for your thoughts... I am going to ask you a question that I have that I'd like you to help me with. Tim, I'm going to start with you if that's okay. Sure. So this is related to our conversation here about the Duke. How would you perform <laughs> the Duke? <laughs> I've been because asking myself this question. Do you do, and actually I kind of want to know what, what Angelina thinks of him too, but Angelina talks about him as being emo, you know, being this like emo character, um, which I think is, kind of spot on and perfect how would you i mean do you have sympathy for him or do you just feel like you want to mock him if you were playing him would you try to play up his, the sympathies or would you try to play up the ridiculousness of him i would play it absolutely straight as an arrow and let the would, language do that for yep, you yep i'd let the language do it because that probably would be funnier honestly i think so, i think it yeah. would be funnier i think it would the be funnier the of how serious he takes his emotions yeah would be really funny i think there's also tactically speaking i'm playing with an actress and the actress is playing uh sorry what is her name viola viola cesario uh sorry i'm i'm playing opposite viola and what's viola's character like viola is not gonna get with a fool I think it would lose the spark, uh, the potential uh, spark of the romance. Why does she them. like him? That's like one of the questions. You, that's, oh, the that's the question the I have for Angelina. <laughs> oh, is it really? Yeah. Okay, then I'll step. I'll step back. Oh, okay, I so just said I don't know. Well, okay, that's fine then. That's maybe that's something to think about as we move forward. Then I love what you're saying here. That playing it straight. If you don't play it straight, if he's if he's too much like. And What's Olivia going to glom on to? She's got no. nothing if he's a fool. No, you're and right. You're right. The subtext, the implication is that she's been around him at his house and she sees things yeah. about and him that are And we're supposed to believe she's not Olivia. She's not in love with the idea of being in love. So something about him. She's seeing through something to his real self. Right. And I mean, perhaps he's just handsome. And rich and powerful. Yeah. So all those things happen. Other than that, he's got nothing going for him. <laughs> well, so he's totally somebody I would lot, not like. There's a lot of rich, handsome, and powerful people who a person like Olivia or Viola would not. Yeah, appeal, absolutely. Yeah, appeal, you're right. Or be appealing to. So let's have the, maybe let's just, instead of Angelina answering that. Uh, we'll just put it in the back of our mind. Yeah, That's what I always keep, tell my yeah. students. That's a question for the back of your mind exactly, as you continue yeah. to read. Yeah. Um, but that, that that is one of the things that, I don't say it bothers me, but... It, She's As in it, love with him already. Exactly. And that's where that's one of the things that bothers me about how things are presented in plays sometimes, especially resistance ones. Because I'm I'm someone who, as someone who taught, was taught, you know, studied creative writing and film studies in school, and like the way you watch movies and the way you think about writing narrative, um, there has to be subtext and subtlety. 
Right. <laughs> but you can't <clears throat> sorry. You can't expect you, you still have to give the audience enough to be able to identify well this is definitely the nature of a play in a especially in a comedy comedies right. just start with people being in love it doesn't end with them well sometimes it does Tammy the shoe ends with them falling in love. one of the but- things you know one of the things that t.s Eliot famously said hamlet's a failure because there's no objective correlative for hamlet's wrath right for his rage his anger oh his inconstancy that that's that there's nothing there that warrants hamlet's behavior and um i think in some ways if you're not just allowing just kind of reading into the subtext of it, you could say, well, there's nothing that warrants Viola loving Orsino. There's no objective correlative. There's nothing in Orsino that makes him worthy of her affection, unless you just assume that it's because she's been around him, right? Oh, wait a minute. Doesn't Sebastian say he's already known? I am bound to the court Orsino's court. I don't know. In, in scene one? Maybe. Yeah. I'll have to think of, I'll have to look into that. I don't remember why Olivia, I, maybe, maybe she already knew him. Because I got to be honest, I'm not seeing anything in the Duke to make me be like, hey, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let me get myself in this little love triangle. As much as I like to just smash myself up. <laughs> <laughs> but we know, but we're supposed to say, well. We're supposed to think it makes sense. And we're supposed to root for them, right? And we're supposed to trust her. Yes. Because she's the one that tells us the truth. She is. See, I, I. Oh, no, you don't like Viola? You think she's cuckoo No, too? I love Viola. I love Viola. And I can give an explanation as to why I think Duke Orsino is not, I don't think he's a clown. Is this going to ruin the next three episodes, David, if I no, say? I don't think he's a clown. <coughs> I don't think he's a clown. I think he's in love with the idea of being in love. So he's just, he's not a clown. It's just that he's wrong in this way, in this one area. He doesn't really love Olivia. He's, a, he's fixated on this idea of her. He's Romeo before he met Juliet. You know, Romeo's in love at the beginning of Romeo and Juliet. And he's kind of in love with love, it seems like. Yes. But I think that his... He I mean, also switches girls super fast. Yeah. Now, I might not be, like, making my case very well if I argue for Romeo as sort of like an evidence <laughs> an evidence that, uh, or, you know, is level-headed underneath it all. <laughs> The one thing about Orsino is he does seem to have been known because, like Antonio knew him, uh, he was he even has enemies on Orsino's court. Right? Yeah, yeah. So that might that must that might be part of it. We're supposed to assume that this is a guy who. All known. right, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it out of the world of metaphor for a second. I know this is very unAngelina, but I'll say this: like, haven't we all just been in love with that yes. person who doesn't love you back, and you think, no, you're in love with the wrong person. So even though you think they're in love with the wrong person, you don't dislike them for that. Like you think, oh no, you're in love with that idiot, and that person is totally wrong for you. But it doesn't make you think they're unworthy of your love. Did any of that make sense? That yes, of course. Out. Yeah. Okay. That's part of the reason why I think he should be. I at least would play him straight because like everybody's kind of been there and maybe it doesn't manifest itself in like in the same way that I, mean, I don't always dress up like a man and try to get close to him, but sometimes <laughs> so far it has not worked, but <laughs> I laughed and then I coughed and then I cried. At least my chest doesn't hurt anymore. <laughs> it's not deep inside me, like tearing me up. Oh, I continue, I are we talking continue, about love Jim. or am I cold? No, I'm not sure. Well, You're the only one in here who's like, never mind. <laughs> David's got a great wife, and I would snatch her away from him in a second. There, I said that on the air. Go ahead. I do have a great wife. 
I was visiting, you know, I'm back in Atlanta. I actually take, I start driving away from Atlanta today, back to the Northwest. And um, I was visiting some old friends and my friend, Laurie, who I haven't seen in a couple of years, I saw her and she's got a new man in her life. And she told me, she said, I forgot how painful and scary it is to be like really smitten with somebody. And, you know, she was just kind of recounting like these things that she's done that are not, they're just not her. But no, she's that's doing why that. I said on the Illogical. Pride and Prejudice episode that no one tells you falling in love feels like you're going to throw up all the time. Yeah, right. That's, that's the way that it actually is. Someone should it's, tell you that. Safety warning right there on the Surgeon General's warning. <laughs> Boom, on the heart. You will throw up all the time. Anyway, continue your story. <laughs> I think that Orsino's, <laughs> we can laugh because in repose, when we sit back and we read the words, we realize how inflated they are. But if yeah, an actor is yeah, yeah, playing yeah. it straight, they, yeah, we're picking up that he, something is out of proportion, mm. but it's not as if he's become, oh gosh, he, he still can, I think he still sounds to me like a reasonable man that's in the middle of, in the influenza of love. All right, I'm going to say this too. This, this is just this is making me way too exposed and I'm going to go home and cry that I should not have said this, but I'm going to say it anyway. And that is, so Viola's this woman and she's, and she's in love with the Duke and he's saying all these over-the-top ridiculous things, right? But mm -hmm. as a woman, I can tell you, she's not thinking to herself, you're an idiot for talking like that. Right. She's thinking, right. oh, I don't need to say those things to me yeah. really yeah. bad. Yeah. Hypothetically, mm. I mean. <laughs> So I, I was thinking if I was to like make this into a movie or something, I might even try to create scenes of Orsino being competent. Yeah. To make her like, yeah. it, I don't know, like whether he's ruling over his court or. You're right. He's got to be worthy of her love. There's got to be something that makes it clear that he is, he's going to be put together. Like if he's just like, I, I don't know, you have to find some way to. to he's make, an expert make, fencer. You know, he just seriously, wouldn't that be great? He's an expert fencer because, like, what a technical, precise craft fencing yeah. is. Yeah, something that like appeals to her logical, her ability yeah. to think logically and clearly. And, and he focus. could very well have a reputation of being a good ruler. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because she she goes to him as a place of safety at the beginning, mm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we have gone too long, so we got to wrap this up. But, about the scene in which I said earlier today, nothing happened. What are we going to talk about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the beauty of, the, of like, we talked about so much subtext. But before we, before we sign off, we need to um, give away that copy of, and then there were none that we promised, to someone who posted their close read swag. So, Ooh, who won it? We loved looking at yeah, this was photos, fun. by the way. So the winner, the winner, after very carefully careful consideration. This was scientific. Close, close voting. <laughs> Uh, we we do close voting here and close reading, close reads. We're gonna we're gonna you know no 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 um no offense to everyone else who sent in amazing stuff, but we're gonna give this to Sarah Hagler for for her her um mugstache for mugstache her her <laughs> submission called mugstache. <laughs> what I love about this is that she brought the mug to the theater when she was watching Murder on the Orient Express. She put a mustache on it, and then she also even filled it with popcorn. And staged it very nicely in the theater. Very nicely. So we and we enjoyed that one. Well, just no pressure on anybody, but we made Graham, our you know creative design guy. He looked at the photos. He was like critiquing. Yeah, the exactly. Photos. Now we also. I'm gonna give so so Sarah Hagler. Congratulations. We'll send you the book. Send me a message. Way to go, Sarah. 
Massive I also day. do want to give a couple shout outs to a few people who yes, did some cool stuff. There were some Nicole Claire's, uh, I don't know exactly how to pronounce your name. Great pictures of her baby oh, reading. We the book, really color coded. Like that was that you almost won. You almost that, swayed us with the cuteness of your child. Also, nearly swaying us was Stacy Groves with the tea was party. That the tea party the that tea was party so one. cute. Tim um, sweating through that tea party. That and then awesome. Andy Andy Sowell or Sowell um, brought the bookmarks to thirty six thousand feet in an airplane oh. cockpit. Um, that's when I was flying on. So yeah, so there were a couple of good ones. We decided we're going to give shout outs to a few people who who did some Photoshop work, but we decided photoshopping a close reads T-shirt onto uh, Kenneth Branagh. Well, fun probably can't win, and then also photoshopping a uh, a bookmark into Wendell Berry's I pocket. I just want to say, great idea, but probably I can't. really pushed for you to win because, and I quote, "You had put me in Wendell Berry's heart." Yeah, <laughs> did push for it, but we decided. So we I decided, did my best. We just have that probably. Maybe not. I could just personally send you a check. <laughs> so that's probably not the best. <laughs> okay, well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Um, Angelina, Tim, thanks for another great episode. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. David. Thanks, Angelina. For, Bye-bye, Tim. for Tim and Angelina, and for all of us here at Cersei, uh, I am David Curran saying farewell and close reads. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Enjoy Twelfth Night. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.